And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Metrospective presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70 celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. I'm Ted Berg, joined, as always, by the Athletics Mets beat writer Tim Britton. Tim, how's it going? Pretty good, Ted. Uh, it's it's Friday morning. I am between coming home from Boston and on my way to Milwaukee. Series that seemed when I booked uh, <laughs> this road trip uh, just uh, you know six weeks ago, maybe uh, maybe a little longer than that, maybe two months ago. Uh, like they would be significantly more important for the Mets than they are. But uh, I was just doing the math. It's it's Friday morning as we, we record this, uh, and the Mets can be eliminated mathematically from the postseason uh, by the end of Friday night if uh, everything goes against them if the Braves win twice in San Diego, uh, if the Phillies win uh, against, uh, I think they're playing the Pirates again, I'm not sure, Um, (laughs) and if the Mets lose to the Brewers. All of those things happen. The Mets will be eliminated from postseason contention with more than a week to go in the season, uh, which is, is pretty remarkable considering where they were not that long ago. It's not the best. I would say if you're going to Boston and Milwaukee or if you've been in Boston, Milwaukee, it might be a, a good time to bust out like a Braves franchise history piece. <laughs> you know, yeah, they, they I, I remember when the Mets schedule came out uh, last, you know, it comes out in like August of the year before uh, seeing that the Mets last road trip, last three road series of the year, Boston, Milwaukee, Atlanta, were actually tracing Braves history uh, going one from the other Uh that is the kind of esoteric thing that I thought only I was interested in, and I'm glad that you are too. I, I wouldn't say I'm interested in it, but I did <laughs> note it. I did note it. Um, you you have a, a good piece out, and something we, we sort of spoke about, but a, a new piece on The Athletic about some of the questions. Uh, the Maybe the biggest question? I don't know if we want to say this is the biggest question. Yeah, no, it's the biggest question. I think the biggest question facing the Mets this offseason, and we're going to go through a bunch of smaller ones, which are also... Uh, pretty large but you know we've discussed at at pretty great length that the Mets will be searching for uh, possibly a new president of baseball operations possibly a new GM Uh, Zach Scott's status is unclear he's still on administrative leave he never lost to that acting title before his uh, GM title and so it, it wasn't clear he would be the guy next year anyway certainly the the DWI doesn't help um, what are some of the things we need to know about this executive search that's forthcoming? Yeah, you know, you, you go back to last November when, when Steve Cohen and Sandy Alderson came in uh, and they had that, that, those two back-to-back uh, Zoom news conferences uh, on November 10th, uh, 45 minutes each, and they talked kind of glowingly about what was going to happen for the organization. And, and one of the really important things they talked about that did not happen and has not happened yet uh, was hiring a president of baseball operations, you know, and, and it was uh, Alderson saying, like, we are going to build the organization around this person. Um, so 
they weren't able to do that. It was it took them about two weeks to realize they were not going to be able to do that. They they could not attract the the top level talent that they wanted to. I think Cohen came in thinking that you know that the baseball industry worked like any industry. You wave a bunch of money in front of someone and they can leave will <laughs> they can leave wherever they are and and work for you. Uh, you know, but there were baseball has it, it's kind of you know. The, the baseball structure in the front office is different than some other sports. Uh, Andrew Baggerly, who covers the Giants for the Athletic, wrote about this uh, about ten days ago with with in regards to Farhan Zaidi and when he went from the Dodgers to the Giants. But uh, it's not like an, it's not like every team has the exact same hierarchy and titles mm-hmm. in their front office. Uh, and so you have teams that have presidents of baseball ops. You have teams that don't. Uh, you have teams that name that position something different. Like the Red Sox with Heim Bloom, I think he's the chief baseball officer. Uh, it's a different title. Um, it's not standardized across the industry, which makes the process of asking teams for permission to to speak to to executives a little bit more complicated. You know, the the industry norm is if if I have a president of baseball ops position and you have a GM, I can I will ask you for permission to talk to him, but you will grant that permission because it's a promotion for him to work here. Uh, so. Uh, that's why we've seen a lot of teams promote internally their GMs to president of baseball operations. The Rays just promoted Eric Neander, a guy who would have been a very good candidate for the Mets uh, in this position, uh, to president of baseball operations, which signals, you know, if the Mets come knocking, we're not answering. We're not, we're not letting you talk to him anymore. We've given him the promotion ourselves. We've given him the raise. He's happy here. We're sticking with him. Uh, so that that's one of the complicated parts of it. It's not just like, you know, we should hire this guy. Let's give him a lot of money, and he'll come. You know, you've got to you've got to work it out with the team that that person works for, unless it is you know Theo Epstein is not working for a team. He's a little simpler in that regard. Can uh, I just you know, stop you for for one second, just because I want a clarification on that point? So, is it because they're under contract that the teams then can? Because it it, it seems very bizarre, and I know that the baseball like marketplace as a whole is a bizarre thing. Certainly, when it terms to when it comes to to player acquisitions and player movement, but it seems extremely um, strange, really, when when you to to say, oh, like the Mets might want this guy Eric Neander for their job. They might want to offer him, like for all we know, three times more money than he's making in Tampa Bay, and he can't even find that out. Yeah, you know, it's uh, I, I think if the if the person there, if if Neander or you know David Stearns, for instance, the Mets asked for permission to talk to David Stearns of Milwaukee last year, uh, and they were turned down by the Brewers. Um, if uh, that person, you know, really expresses interest in wanting to leave, you're not going to, you know, you don't want to have your your the guy who's running all of your baseball decisions there unwillingly. Like that's probably not a good dynamic to have. Uh, I think in Stearns' case, he had very recently signed a contract extension with the Brewers. Uh, one that he's still under, I think, through next season is is what others have reported. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, there's a difference between being one year into a contract extension and one year from the end of a contract extension. Uh, and so, uh, it, you know, maybe if they're interested in David Stearns this year, a guy who grew up in Manhattan who interned for the Mets uh, back, uh, you know, 13 years ago or something. Uh, if, if he was like, hey, I, you know, I have served you well as an organization. Uh, I'm really interested in this job, you know. Can you let me go at least talk about it? Uh, I think a, a reasonable franchise would be open to that. Uh, I, I don't know what it would be like if they denied him that, that permission. Uh, but that that is kind of uh, it's not even it's not co- codified or codified. I never know how to pronounce that word uh, in 
in the sport. It's just kind of like that's the norm is is you have to ask for permission. And as long as it's a promotion, you will get that permission. But if it's a lateral move, uh, it's kind of up in the air. It's too gentlemanly that. Right. That's too. What? Just I don't know. I I think that I would be think of how resentful you would be if you were like if you were Eric Neander and you found out later like, wow, the Mets were going to blow you away. But instead, we made you we you, you you kept the same job. You got slightly more money and we gave you a new title. I mean, in, in that case, like Neander could have turned that promotion down two weeks ago or I whatever guess it was. I guess so you could, could have said, you know what? Uh, I, I don't want to do this just yet. Uh, I know what me, you're up to. I know what you're up yeah. to. Yeah. Um, go on. Uh, so, you know, I, I think the, the three names that, that people have heard already, that people are going to hear for a little bit, are Epstein, Billy Bean, and, and David Stearns. They're all guys who've had a lot of success in the major leagues. You know, Epstein's won three World Series in, in under two decades as an executive. Uh, Billy Bean has run the, the A's for a very long time and, and had them consistently good despite very low payrolls. Uh, and... Stearns has led the Brewers now to four consecutive playoff appearances. It's kind of built the sustainable winner uh, that that every team uh, wants to build, and he's done it at a, a low to mid-level payroll uh, level. So those are the guys that, that you'll hear about. You know, Epstein is not working for a team, so he's easier to talk to, easier to, to gauge interest from. Uh, Bean and Stearns are both, it would be lateral moves from Bean. It might even be like a step down because he's already got a stake in athletics ownership. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, our our Ken Rosenthal wrote recently kind of why uh, Bean Bean clearly, I think, makes sense from the Mets' perspective, but why the Mets could make sense from his perspective, given his long-standing relationship with Sandy Alderson, a guy that he has said that he idolizes and, and, you know, loved working with uh, in Oakland. Uh, And maybe, you know, he has finally reached the point where he's a little tired of of all of the... um, the other stuff that happens with running the A's, their their ballpark situation, and that that it's still not that close to a resolution, uh, and and whether he'd be willing to give up uh, what he's got invested in Oakland and and try it somewhere in a big market before his career is over. Those are the three guys you'll you'll hear about. You know, I, if the Mets don't hire one of those guys, uh, it gets a little bit more complicated for them because of the dynamic we just talked about. It's not like they can just move down the list to other presidents of baseball ops in the league. Uh, then you start looking at sitting general managers if you want to try to give them uh, a, a promotion. Interestingly, you know, Brian Cashman is just a sitting general manager. He's never been made a, a president of baseball operations. I'd love to hear that conversation happen just, just to see what the Yankees' reaction is. Um, and then, you know, you go to, like, assistant GMs. Uh, you know, it's it's tough to to know exactly what direction they want to go in. Uh, at that point, I think they're they're focused right now on trying to get as big a fish as possible, especially with the way last year went, with the way uh, the offseason went for them in the, the executive search and, and with Jared Porter and now Zach Scott, uh, that the, the easiest way for, for Steve Cohen and for Sandy Alderson to uh, win back some, some credibility with the fan base uh, and, and really, really across the sport is to nail this hire. Uh, they weren't able to do it last winter. Let, let's see what they can do this time around. I want to make two points about uh, what you just said. I only have one point until you mentioned Brian Cashman, and I want to get back to that one. Um, For Billy Bean, and I can understand, I think as a Mets fan, 
and you hear people say, oh, Billy Bean's checked out. He cares about soccer now. You know, look at the results. Like The A's have still been a really good team. Whether it's uh, his hand on the lever of day-to-day operations so much, uh, I think is sort of immaterial when you're talking about this position because it's a position that's going to be uh, mostly you know, hiring the people who, who make those decisions. And it's clear he has done a really, really good job of that in Oakland. He has done such a good job of that that he, his teams have made the postseason uh, since he took over as GM uh, and, like you said, consistently one of the lowest payrolls in the sport. And they've made the postseason basically half the time. And they've never so much as made the World Series. And so it's not because I think that there's anything to that. I think there's maybe like and you can dive deep into it but i think that there's maybe like some case to be made that um teams that can afford to invest big in frontline starting pitchers might be a little bit better off when the playoffs come around and different things like that but i think mostly that's bad luck for billy bean and i'm sure billy bean better than everyone uh, understands how fickle a seven game series can be for me i think that i would be excited as a mets fan but disappointed for Billy in Billy Bean and for Billy Bean that like you can spend 24 years and have so much success with this team but get get an ownership stake uh don't take the job in Boston because of your daughter's lovely guitar song um and then and then just like go at the end of your career go sell out for a huge payroll um instead of trying to win the world series with with the Oakland A's like I, I don't know um, again, like a, the Met fan part of me would like it, but the Billy Bean fan part would be like a, a little bit let down. I, I think it, it Brian, would, yeah, go sorry, on. Uh, it, it would be kind of like Carl Malone going from the Jazz to the Lakers late in his career, just trying to win a championship. Yeah, yeah. Which, which didn't work out for Carl. And it doesn't feel good. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe it feels good for them and maybe it would feel great for Billy Bean to get a, a ton of money and, and some of that. That Steve Cohen cash and, and an investment stake in what is presumably a much more, uh, you know, valuable franchise or whatever else. Um, <coughs> to Cashman, I didn't realize that he was still only a GM. He's been there for so long. That's a guy that I think is somehow, despite being the GM of the Yankees, like underrated at his job, you know, because people just assume, oh, Yankees payroll. Um, and so that's why the Yankees win, right? Because it's the, it's the payroll thing. And it's just that that's always going to be how it is. That's that's really not tr- like look at the Red Sox. The Red Sox always have a huge payroll. They've had a ton of success, but they've also had bad years. The Yankees have practically no bad years. A bad year for the Yankees is like 88 wins and a wild card spot. Um, they quietly like have done a really good job doing the thing we talked about with Andy McCullough that the Dodgers do, which is, you know, finding these scrap heap guys and and turning them into valuable players, making good mid-level free agent acquisitions. Like, Cashman's just, I think, up and down. Like, he's done a really, really good job running the Yankees. And I think a lot of Mets fans would hate it if Brian Cashman became the, the team's president of baseball operations. But I think it would work. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't think that's that's that realistic an option. Uh, I was just like, I went through each team and kind of how their front office is structured, and was surprised as well that he's, you know, he's. I think his official title is senior vice president and general manager, which is the same thing that like uh, Rick Hahn has in Chicago or uh, Thad Levine in Minnesota, who is below Derek Falvey in their structure. Uh, so you know, like, if the Mets offered it to him uh, and Cashman were interested, like the Yankees, you know. 
again, based off of the industry norms, would grant him permission to talk about it because it would represent a promotion. But, you know, he's he has been there for so long, uh, almost, I think, as long as, as Bean has been running things in mm-hmm. Oakland. Uh, and, you know, they haven't had a losing season in that stretch. And, yeah, the, the Yankees come with certain advantages as to how you build a team. Uh, but the I think the hope, if you're a Mets fan, is that those same advantages will be there for you as well uh, under Steve Cohen, that you can run a team very similarly uh, in that structure. And maybe even... Uh, a little bit more, uh, maybe with less concern about the competitive balance tax threshold uh, under Steve Cohen than, than Cashman has experienced under Hal Steinbrenner in the last few years. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. There is something that fits really nicely, though, about the Yankees' general manager being named Cashman. (laughs) It is is one of those, uh, like, predestined names for a job, right? You know? Early uh, win. (laughs) <laughs> Grant Balfour, you know, it, yeah. it just it just works for for the profession. Um, we talked a little bit last time about some of the the personnel decisions the Mets have coming up. We talked about uh, uh, quali- qualifying offers. I wanted to talk today about a couple of guys who who won't get qualifying offers uh, be- because they can't, um, but would. And those are the two I think biggest pending free agents. On the Mets, uh, which would be Marcus Stroman, who's playing now on a qualifying offer and so can't be given another, and Javi Baez, who was acquired midseason and so can't be given a qualifying offer. Let's start with Stroman. Um, how realistic do you think is the chance that that they go hard after him this offseason? I think it's realistic. Uh, you know, his his market is going to be really interesting to me mm-hmm. because he's the type of player that uh, like Fangraphs wins above replacement uh, probably undervalues because he's a a ground ball pitcher. Uh, his FIP is gener- is fielding independent pitching number is generally higher than his ERA. Uh, it, it's 
although actually no, over the course of his career it's just about even um but uh doesn't strike out a ton of players uh you know so doesn't you know the remember when like zach wheeler signed with the phillies and got a lot more money than people expected part of it was like you could see where he was going to grow and where he mm-hmm. could get better where where you could as an organization take advantage of what he had whereas stroman i think like stroman maximizes what he has already uh, so he's a little bit less enticing in terms of like what can we do to make this guy better it's it's we plug this guy you know it's you're looking for a house you know marcus stroman is is a turnkey house you move right in like it's it's perfect you don't have to do anything uh whereas uh other other pitchers you look to renovate and make better um so i i don't know what you know if this is a nine-figure contract that he's looking at based on coming off of the season i do think what he's given the mets this year is what uh, a team any team in baseball could really use and what the Mets could probably really use next season, which is uh, kind of a reliability of innings. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even after not pitching last year, he's at 174 now with probably uh, two starts to go. Uh, so he can get to 185, you know, that range uh, on the season, which is is really nice. He's made every start this season. Uh, I think he left one early because of a hip issue, but came back five days later. And, you know, it's, I don't think he's 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 not a Cy Young candidate. He didn't make the All Star team. Uh, he's probably not going to get down ballot Cy Young votes. But uh, this is a guy that that if the Mets bring back, you slot into that rotation. You start with Degrom, Stroman, and Carrasco, and Carrasco has pitched better of late, uh, and you feel a little bit better about what he can give the Mets next season based off of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a nice top three in your rotation, and then you can fill out beyond that. I'm not sure, you know, if if they don't sign Stroman, do they go after, you know, is it someone like Kevin Gosman a bit more aggressively? Because, that, again, that's someone you can you can imagine getting a little bit better or, or you know, maintaining his first half numbers from this year more consistently than his second half. Uh, that, that's an interesting dynamic of, of what do you value in a pitcher? Do you, do you value the upside in a free agent pitcher or something more like reliability? Uh, and how does that get paid? Uh, you know, Gosman might make, get more than Stroman because of that upside. Uh, but I, I do think he fits what they should be looking for uh, in a starter this winter. Yeah, it's a Gosman is an interesting comp because he too has largely been healthy and reliable, and I think that is something that is um, not valued enough in teams' pursuit of pitchers. Like I think that yeah, obviously there's something to be said for for what you're saying. Like these the guys with the potential to be something more, where you're gonna you know you're gonna bring back. Uh, you know, someone better than than the free agent you signed, I guess, because you you think you can improve him. But um, there's a there's a whole 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 lot of value in a guy who can and does take the ball every fifth day because it means you you're not forcing. Um, and I mean, you can run through the list of names of of guys the Mets have used uh, in the back of the rotation this year and and pick any one. Um, you're not forcing. Joe Lucchese or Trevor Williams or, you know, like I don't want to Jared Eikhoff, uh, like uh, all those guys into starts because you're making those starts. And I think that's something the Mets really need. I also think uh, I kind of feel like Stroman's going to get a lot of money. I I think if you look at the free agent pitchers, like Gosman is the other one who's sort of in that same category where they'll they'll both be young 30s. I think they'll both be 30 uh, this offseason. The other names, I don't think Clayton Kershaw is really going to hit free agency, but uh, it's it's guys like that. It's like Zach Greinke and Max Scherzer, and and um, you know the the late thirties 
top flight, well-known aces that teams aren't going to want to go long-term investments in. Stroman and Gosman are, are those mid-tier guys who might have more, who certainly have more long-term upside. Uh, I think you're right. It's going to be a really interesting market. I certainly hope the Mets participate in it because I just, I, I love watching Stroman pitch so much. Um, and I think he, he's just like a, a really fun guy to have around, it seems like. Baez is another very fun guy to hang around. We've talked about him quite a bit already in, in terms of his free agency. You made a point last time, um, which is just massively important, which is that uh, unlike many of the infield candidates on the open market this 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 offseason, uh, Baez and Chris Bryant both uh, will be free of the qualifying offer compensation. Does that mean he's a, a a real candidate to be back on this team next year? It's I forget if, if I made this specific point last time when we talked about him. Like it really depends on I think how much Steve Cohen is willing to spend. I think we, we know that he's willing to go over the competitive balance tax threshold. Uh, he, he he was willing last year for Trevor Bauer. Uh, he said during the season that that he doesn't believe in going just over it. He like you know if you're gonna go over it, go over it uh, and make it meaningful, which is a, a nice thing for a fan base to hear. Let's see what what that actually means to him, uh, because you know your your payroll is is not going to drop off by a lot at the end of this season because you've got to remember Robinson Cano is coming back onto it, uh, and do the Mets want to be paying uh, Francisco Lindor thirty four million dollars uh, to play shortstop Robinson Cano? 20 million dollars to who knows uh be on the team or not be on the team you know some, somewhere in there and Javi Baez uh something like 25 million dollars a year to be playing second base for them you know I, I said last time we talked about him that you know you didn't you don't want to judge Baez based off of what he's done for the Mets in a small sample you want to judge him off of a longer track record uh it is interesting that like since that we talked about this what maybe two weeks ago or something but since then, uh, he's, he's he's kind of changed who he is as a hitter a bit. Like he's we've seen him lay off pitches, and he's walking at a, a much higher rate than he did previously. You know, he had 15 walks in 361 plate appearances with the Cubs. He's got 12 in uh, 154 with the Mets. Uh, it's the highest walk rate of his career over a, a, a stretch like this. Uh, so oh, that's interesting. You you wonder like. You know, you can imagine a team talking itself into this is a change for him. He's going to make this permanent. You know, he's going to be able to, to take this player. You know, if Javi Baez isn't swinging at everything outside of the strike zone, uh, then he's a really, really good player. He's already a really good player. Um, but if he's not swinging as much at things out of the zone, uh, man, you, you can really dream on that guy. At the same time, like he's done it for a couple of weeks. Uh, and we've seen, you know, I remember when the Mets signed Todd Frazier, Todd Frazier had changed his approach the entire season before the year he was, he split between Chicago and the Yankees where he had stopped swinging at pitches outside of the strike zone. His walk rate had jumped up. So even though his like average had come down, his on base percentage was making up for it. And then that didn't play out in the, the couple of years since then, uh, with the Mets and elsewhere. Uh, so I, I don't want to buy too much into what he's done over the, the couple, you know, couple weeks he's been with the Mets, but, uh, it certainly has made it more intriguing to think about, you know, well, if, if this is who he can be, you know, and, and maybe it's not the full, you know, 380 on base percentage that he's carrying with the Mets. If, if But if he can get that to 340, 350 rather than the, the usual kind of 320, uh, then, uh, you know, what he does 
in terms of slugging the ball, what he does uh, as a defender, as a base runner, uh, put that all together, and, and he's a lot more intriguing than, than maybe he was on, on July 30th. Yeah, I don't buy the uptick in like I just, it's just too small of a sample for me to say, OK, this is a real thing. And you're right that it is like a classic sort of trap stat here. Like, you, you know, like, oh, like he had this like nice little run of of taking walks and, and some team, possibly the Mets convinces themselves it's real. I doubt it's real. I think he's just such a good player regardless of his plate discipline discipline that he's worth making a run at with no qualifying offer with if if I had Steve Cohen's money I also think the more I think about with Cano it's like you know and I know teams typically don't operate this way they you know all the all teams claim they make losses and they're not just running on revenue but I think Teams are mostly run like businesses, and their um, their investments are coming out of uh, income. You know, not necessarily out of Steve Cohen's pockets. Steve Cohen has the what you'd call the fu money, right? And if he wants to make Robinson Cano go away, like I don't want to hear for a, a minute that like, oh, you got to keep Cano around because you owe him twenty four million dollars. That to Steve Cohen is like a, a bad, a good hour. 24 million dollars right like that's just that's nothing to that guy and so i don't want to like it's just that that shouldn't be if cano shows up and he looks great at spring training like look robinson cano is a a hall of fame caliber player he's not gonna make the hall of fame but he's a hall of fame caliber player um and and so you know if you if he shows up and you're paying him anyway and it looks like he can he can give you something then fine if it doesn't you can't you can't be worth ten billion dollars and carry an albatross on your roster just because you owe them twenty four million. Yeah, and I, I don't expect the Mets to like like certainly I don't think they're going to enter spring training with the idea that like Robinson Cano has a starting role on the roster uh, or that Robinson Cano is a a guaranteed spot on the roster. Uh, I think you know it's it's not guaranteed that they get rid of him before then. Uh, I think you know the uncertainty with the designated hitter and that we could be entering February not knowing uh, that there's kind of the, the Mets can hedge that by carrying Cano through that point um, and saying, you know, this is a guy who, if we have a DH, could play a role for us. If we don't, then, we're, then, then maybe we move on, but we don't have to make that decision. It's, it's not like, you know, you're signing a free agent or something uh, without knowing. Like, you can just carry this guy with no penalty until you decide to get rid of him. Um, so I, I think that that would be how I would expect them to act with Cano, mm-hmm. um, which I think befits their their current ownership ownership structure more. If if this were the Wilpons, I think we all know that that Robinson Cano would be on the twenty twenty two Mets and probably playing for the twenty two twenty twenty two Mets uh, regularly. Uh, so I, I think that's a difference under this group. Um, it, it, you know, with, with Baez, like there are other candidates on the infield, other high-priced candidates on the infield. You know, like Marcus Semien is having a, a, a huge year. We talked about him last mm-hmm. time. Uh, Carlos Correa is having a huge year. He's going to be out there. You know, Trevor Story and Corey Seager and all these guys. Uh, the qualifying offer thing is interesting um, because right now the Mets, uh, you know, if the draft were tomorrow, uh, I have to look right now. The Mets would be drafting 11th. That's the Kumar Rocker pick. And 13th mm-hmm. is because they've got the 12th worst record. You draft 13th because their compensation pick bumps them down, which means if they were to sign Carlos Correa, who's going to get a qualifying offer from the Astros, uh, they sign him, they lose the 13th pick. That's their second highest pick. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they, let's say that they play a little worse down the stretch and the Angels pass and the Angels are a half game, 
behind them right now, and the Rockies passed them. The Rockies are two games behind the Mets right now. Then the Mets would be picking 10th and 11th. You can't forfeit the compensation pick for Rocker, the 11th pick, which means if they signed Carlos Correa in that uh, instance, the pick that they would give up to sign him would be their second round pick. So that would be something in the, you know, around 50 rather than 13. Uh, I think that doesn't mean you don't look at Correa if it's the 13th pick you're giving up. It doesn't mean you, you, you just throw all the guys who've gotten qualifying offers out of the picture. But, you know, this is a team that gave up a first round pick for Michael Kadire, uh, which was probably not worth it. It's part of the calculation. If you say, okay, we can have Baez on his contract uh, in giving up a pick and, and not giving up a pick or Correa on probably a larger contract, uh, I would guess, uh, and giving up a pick which makes the most sense for our roster right now and, and the organization we want to build. You don't, you, you know, it's, it's not like you don't sign those guys at all, but it's another part of the acquisition cost that you have to consider. E, you know, even if it's the 50th pick, the 50th pick is still really valuable. Um, right. That, that's still where you get Pete Alonso uh, in, in the draft. So uh, for a team that, that, you know, wants to build through the draft and, and has, has drafted very well, uh, that's something to consider. Yeah, I think that it is like you have to come up with some like hard value that you place on that on that pick. And I'm sure teams do that, um, that you can consider as part of the like you said, as part of the equation when you go after free agents. I will say if they do wind up giving giving up a pick for a first round pick for a free agent, it can't be Michael Kadire. And I think if you're doing it, then like like if they're going to go hard at at Correa or whoever else, uh, a qualifying offer guy, then like for me, it's like, well, then sign three of them, you know, right? Like just then then just blow it out. You know, like if you're if you're going to say like our our immediate future is going to be prioritized over our long term future, then go all in. Um, and if you're not, then then, you know, still don't go all out then you go for Baez or Brian or any number of guys who who don't have that that qualifying offer attached with Kizik Can's free shoes motion sounds something like this Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion with over 200 patents and easy on easy off technology you'll never have to touch your shoes again there are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. Our question this week is, is a, a related topic to this one. It comes from Matt um, via email. If you have a question, you can, you can email us. You can email me at asktedberg at gmail.com. Uh, you can get after both of us on Twitter. Matt wants to know, do you all think that there's a chance a work stoppage leads to missed regular season games in 2022? And what, if any, major CBA changes seem like they could be in the offing? This is a very big question. Yeah, this is not like a answer in, in 60 seconds question. Um, but we'll try. Uh, but yeah, uh, I think, yes, there's a chance. Like uh, it is, a, you know, there's a greater chance of a work stoppage affecting the, the, the regular season. Uh, this year than there has been um, in a while, probably going back to like 2002-ish or so uh, and that CBA. Um, and I, I think the expectation at this point um, is that, uh, I shouldn't say expectation, but th th there is a, a pretty reasonable chance that we're going to get a lockout. So the oh, that's, that, that's the owners locking out the players. That's not a strike. Uh, on December, December 1st is when the CBA runs out. Uh, you know, around that time, the owners could... In, impose a lockout if they have not agreed to a new CBA. 
in which case kind of the the regular churn of of the offseason free agent signing trades and all that stuff kind of halts for a little while mm-hmm. uh i think there are people who expect a lockout but expect it to eventually be worked through by like the start of spring training and i think that's kind of the scenario i'm thinking might happen based off of, of what i've heard from others other smarter people uh that you know we could have a, a situation where a lot of a lot of moves don't happen until February. You know, you, you get that deadline on the clock of, of spring training supposed to start next week. We should probably have a collective bargaining agreement and these hundred free agents should probably be with the team. Uh, I can imagine a scenario like that happening, which is would be a real mess, uh, but it wouldn't cost you the regular season. I can oh, that would be cutting... a fun week in February, though. Uh, you'd imagine it'd be like NBA free agency, uh, mm-hmm. everything happening within 24 hours. Uh, and then... Uh, you know, I can imagine it eating into parts of spring training a little bit, um, which, uh, again, we've, we've seen what happens when, when spring training is not full. It, it can can play with, with how guys prepare for the season. Uh, so I, I don't think it's going to be a normal offseason. I think it's going to be a mess uh, in some degree because of that. Uh, and you're going to have teams, some teams that are, are going to say, like, you know, we don't know what rules we're operating under, so we're not going to be a team that jumps out there and signs, guys. Uh, I know Joel Sherman at the Post has written that maybe some teams might uh, might try to get ahead of, of the curve and start signing guys before December 1st because they want to make sure that they're okay going into spring training regardless. Uh, I think we can see a real split between who the aggressive teams are and the conservative ones are. I think there'll be more conservative teams than aggressive ones. That's how it's played out for years. Uh, and then interesting changes to the CBA. Uh, I know the, the ownership's uh, initial proposal that was floated out there included a salary floor, which I think is popular with a lot of fans. It's not popular with the Players Association because you bring in a salary floor, it's just a, a way to, to justify a salary cap later. Mm-hmm. And that is the existence of the Players Union is like the, the number one rule of the Players Union is we don't get a salary cap. No salary cap. Uh, even and, though and, even know, though they did nego- basically negotiate a scale, like because teams are are more or less operating with the the CBT threshold as a soft cap and I think that was one of the major foul ups of the MLBPA in the last 10 years. Yeah, you know, you go back the the luxury tax came in uh, in the late 90s uh, and it was it operated differently. Uh, the, the Mets actually went over the luxury tax at that stretch and it was it was basically like the top 5 payroll teams had to pay a little bit of a a, a surcharge. Uh, and then when once they set it at a certain dollar amount uh, then you've seen teams more and more respond to it uh, like a soft cap. And, you know, a lot of teams like to get under it for a year to reset the penalties, then go over it for a stretch. But, you know, you've seen the Yankees get under it uh, this year. You've seen the, the Red Sox trade Mookie Betts to get under it. Like, I, I don't think when the Players Association agreed to a luxury tax, they envisioned that scenario, one of the the three teams that pays a ton of money in free agency in Boston trading its very best player to get under the luxury tax. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I think teams have operated differently. Uh, they've exploited the loopholes in the system more aggressively than the Players Association expected. Um, Evan Drellick, who covers uh, these complicated issues really well for us at The Athletic, had wrote about kind of the 2011 uh, CBA and the 2016 CBA and how 2011 kind of set the, the standard for what happened in 2016. Uh, and, and how owners have just kind of uh, exploited those loopholes more than, than the players expected. And that's created kind of the animosity and the, the tension between the two sides where players, in a way that they weren't in 2016, are more unified and, and I think more willing to, to endure a work stoppage this time around than they were last time. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, to me, it feels like they are so far apart in what needs to get done 
that I would be, I would say like it's better than even money. They miss some games next year. Uh, hopefully they don't miss a lot of games next year. It just seems like the economy of the game has shifted so much based on really how much better run teams are now than they used to be like teams have clearly identified that you would rather uh pay a guy major league minimum to be your you know 22nd 23rd like i remember not that long ago the mets are giving out eight million dollars to alejandro de aza and, and or the mets are given like four million guaranteed to alex cora to be a bench piece like i just don't think teams are are ever going to make big investments in those like low tier free agent guys anymore and a lot of those guys are are the ones who are who are uh you know pretty big wheels at the at the players union um to me like there needs to be a a massive overhaul i don't know if that that's what they'll try to do like it that's not generally baseball's mo um it seems like they need to double or even triple the the major league minimum salary which will like uh counterintuitively i think benefit free agents as well right because if a if a guy you call up from triple a is no longer like free by the standards of major league payroll then maybe you do turn around and start investing in certainty at the fringes of your roster but again like i think that um, the owners have done such a good job in these negotiations. Now the player union structure has changed a little bit. They've they've hired a negotiator. Like it's it's going to be different this time around. Uh, the owners have made so many inroads on the like what was for so long the strongest union in sports that uh, it's it's hard for me to imagine the players evening the score without some sort of work stoppage here. Yeah, yeah, I think the the minimum salary thing that you mentioned is is really interesting, and I think that's probably the better path to more teams spending more than uh, a salary floor. Uh, you get, you know, like for so long the players' association, the unions, uh, their attack plan has been like, let's get you paid in free agency, uh, and teams, you know, like look, the steroids are not a thing anymore, so players do not age as gracefully into their thirties. You know, you're not going to give. Uh, a 34-year-old guy a six-year contract the way you might have uh, not that long ago uh, and, and expect really good performance during it. Uh, so uh, I think raising the minimum salary, and, and I think the, the focus now is probably on getting people paid before free agency. So that's, uh, you know, we've seen teams kind of weaponize arbitration in the last couple of years. Mark Craig wrote a story about how, you know, the, the oh God, basically the gave belt. out a, a, pro, a, a championship belt to the team that, won, that, that kept costs down the most in arbitration. Um, you know, and, and so I think the, the focus from the union will be getting players to arbitration sooner, getting them to free agency sooner, and getting them paid more in those years before they get there. Uh, so raising the minimum salary, which is right now, I think, just a little bit under $600,000, getting that closer to a million dollars or more. You know, like take the, from the Mets perspective, you know, Tomas Nito has been their backup catcher this year. He's on the minimum salary uh, this season. Uh, but you could have imagined a scenario where the Mets went into this past year and said, you know what, like, we like Nito as a player, but we're not sure. We feel like we need uh, a, a more veteran backup catcher. Let's go out and sign, you know, I, I, I'm not, I don't remember who was available. Uh, the Ronnie Paulino of 2021. Let's, let's, let's sign Alex Avila. Let's sign, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, not Drew Butera. That's, that's a bit low. Uh, Nito's better than him. <laughs> um, 
But like that kind of guy who costs $3 million. You know, like they signed Jonathan VR and Kevin Pillar to contracts of that size. Uh, but, uh, you know, signing that version of a player to be the, the catcher, so many teams just say, you know, we'll roll with the league, the, the minimum salary guy and see what we can get out of him rather than make that investment. So the middle class of free agency uh, has really plummeted. You know, like Jerry's Familia is going to be an interesting free agent this year. He's coming off a three-year, $30 million contract. He hasn't pitched that well. Uh, but he's also like a useful pitcher to have in the bullpen. Mets fans are, hate hearing this right now. This is not how they think of Jerry's Familia at all. Um, but you know, is he a guy who gets a one-year, two million dollar contract? Right. Does he get one year and six million? I think it's going to be one year. But uh, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in seeing where that dollar value lands for a pitcher like him, who's useful, but you know, kind of is what he is at this point. A guy's going to give you a three-eight or a four ERA pitching the sixth or seventh inning. Yeah, guys like that, I mean, because, because, again, because you can find that guy for the major league minimum, right? So it feels like increasingly a guy like Familia, who does have value to a major league team, just lingers on the market for the for the entire offseason and then either winds up taking a, a tiny free agent deal or even doesn't even get a major league contract, you know, which which happens sometimes. It's um, it's a it's a big conversation. It's a system that is clearly in need of overhaul. Um, I think I wonder to Matt's question, if he meant sort of gameplay things, I think, uh, the DA, the DH is clearly like a carrot on a stick that the, that the, uh, the league has where the players union clearly would want, should want a DH. I think everyone wants a DH, but probably the owners aren't willing to admit that because they want to have it as a negotiating chit. Um, I think also probably, uh, pitch clock might be on the table. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 Rob Manfred can unilaterally implement a pitch clock at this point because they've, they've talked about it for long enough that they, they were going to like negotiate it in, but he can just kind of impose it at this point. Uh, I, I'd be, you know, that's another one. We've seen them experiment a lot with different things at the minor league levels. Uh, Jason Stark just wrote about a 15-second pitch clock in the California League. That Very compelling. by 20 minutes. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I know the like baseball no clock thing. Um, I would be okay with a pitch clock. Uh, I, I, I don't think it'd be as aggressive as 15 seconds. I, I'd imagine it would start at 20, maybe in 25, just to give guys uh, as much of an adjustment runway as possible. But that would be a way, especially given the, the way these Mets games have gone in the last week and a half of a, just a bunch of three and a half to four hour games, uh, of speeding it up a little bit. And it, like we, we talked with Luis Rojas about this recently, and, and he said, you know, we were talking about how long the games have been. He's like, he, he said he doesn't mind. Like, he likes baseball. Um, yeah. He doesn't, they don't feel long to him in the dugout. And I, I do think, like, a game like that Sunday night game against the Yankees, which was, I believe, over four hours, just about four hours long as a nine-inning game, that game doesn't feel long. There's a ton of action in it. It's really exciting. Uh, it's a back-and-forth game. It's the Wednesday night game in Boston that's three hours and 40 minutes or so, uh, where they're down 9-1 in the third inning. That's the game that feels really long, you know, yeah. that... Uh, that, that, that game just kind of drags on you. Uh, so I, I think, you know, having a pitch clock and just kind of raising pitchers, we've seen it in the minor leagues, to be a little bit quicker on the mound, hitters to be a little bit quicker, that you're not kind of st- storing up that energy to throw as hard as possible uh, on each pitch uh, would, be, would be beneficial. Yeah, if you haven't seen Jason Stark's article about the 15-second experiment, I, I heartily recommend it. What it turns out, um, Rico Bronia is involved, for one thing, but also it sounds like everyone who saw it was really fond of it. Um, and I'm glad to hear it because it, it, 
it emphasized a point I've made a bunch of times before, which is that I think a pitch clock probably changes pitchers' approach a little bit, um, and it does turn out that that contact is up. The thinking being that uh, forcing pitchers to uh, work a little more quickly makes makes a, a start more back into uh, a marathon versus a, a series of 100 sprints. Yeah, and that, that's, you know, I, I've seen some people say like, oh, pitch clock would be be bad for pitchers' health because they don't get to recover from pitch to pitch. I think we really just have to have to have a game where pitchers feel comfortable not throwing 100% on every single pitch. Uh, baseball prospectus wrote about this earlier in the year, kind of like a restrictor plate for pitching. Uh, and I like that idea where, you know, it's, it's not like you said, just all of these short sprints of, of throwing as hard as you can every time. Uh, we will go as hard as we can, of course, next week when we are back to talk more about the Mets. Tim, peace out. Adios. Adios.